Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw and welcome back to Vibe. I am bringing you someone today who I've been very excited to interview. I recently read his book. It's called The Longevity Diet. I've heard him on a few of of a few other shows that friends of mine run who have a really great health and wellness podcasts. And Dr. Walter Longo, Professor Longo, is coming to us from across the pond. He's internationally recognized as a leader in the field of aging studies and related diseases. Today, specifically, we're going to talk about fasting and how you can fast and how you can get the benefits of fasting without completely going without food. We're doing this just a few days before I head to an ashram in Texas to water fast for nine days. It's my fourth trip there in the last two years. I don't recommend you get on a plane and go to this ashram and water fast and we'll share with you why. But Dr. Longo's discoveries include some of the major genetic pathways that regulate aging and life-threatening diseases. And he's identified genetic mutations that protect human beings from several common diseases. So he's a professor of gerontology and biological science. He is director of the Longevity Institution at the School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, which is devoted to teaching and research on aging. And he also works part of the time in Milan. He's the director of the Oncology Laboratory and Longevity at the Institute of Molecular Oncology. So go, I could go on for another five minutes about his amazing academic accomplishments, but let's get right to it. Thanks for being on the show, Professor Longo. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about fasting, partly because of my own personal experience with fasting. I was raised in a religious tradition that fasted once a month for a full day. And so from the time I was eight years old, I would go without food for 24 hours once a month. And my parents were very, very strict about it. I was not actually provided any food, but it wasn't it wasn't for health reasons. It was for spiritual reasons. And that's really, I think that's been most people who fast throughout history, it's been more for those kinds of reasons. But will you tell us a little bit about um, why fasting is such an incredible health reboot and why it's so disease preventative? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Uh, people think that we've been doing, uh, most religions have been imposing fasting for thousands of years because of health reasons, but that's not really true. Um, it's, uh, it's been really uh, about uh, um, sacrifice more than, more than health. And now it's possible that there's some uh, had the health in mind and they made some observations about, uh, the, about health and fasting, but uh, that's not really the main reason. Um, you know, why is fasting uh, good? I mean, first of all, fasting is good and bad, right? And, um, and uh, so now we know, uh, for example, uh, that uh, um, something called color restriction that we've been studying for 100 years, and, and we were all convinced it was so good for everybody. Um, it turns out uh, after we've done monkey studies and human studies and mouse studies, that uh, it's great for diseases, right? It reduces diabetes. Almost 100% of the of the monkeys that were uh, they were color restricted 
are protected from diabetes and they're protected from cancer and they're protected from cardiovascular disease, but then they uh, probably become weaker, frailer, um, and then they, uh, they die of other causes. So fasting is the same way. And uh, uh, it it's, can be great, very powerful, uh, but it can also hurt you. So how can it be powerful? Well, main thing that we're finding in the lab, both in mice and human studies, it seems to be able to get rid of, of junk, essentially damaged cells, damaged cellular components, um, and, uh, and essentially replace them with uh, ones that are working very well. And, uh, and, and you know, why can it be dangerous? For many, many different reasons. It can be dangerous because um, it's particularly water-only fasting. It causes uh, hypoglycemia. Uh, it can cause hypotension. Uh, it can, um, uh, of, course, of course, affect, uh, interact with a number of, of drugs uh, and, and medicines in a negative way. For example, a number of people have died by injecting insulin uh, in, uh, in combination with fasting. And I had uh, several patients that wrote to me and got very close to dying because they did some improvised uh, long-term fasting and uh, they didn't know it cannot be combined with insulin. Uh, so, yeah, so these are just, uh, in Italy, for example, I always talk about um, a lady that had multiple sclerosis uh, and under doctor supervision, but a doctor wasn't very careful, uh, did three weeks of water-only fasting at home with multiple sclerosis, and she ended up also dying. So, yeah, so these are just some of the stories, but, uh, but I think there are many, many more of these stories that uh, people don't see, and this is why... Uh, we, uh, a long time ago, made the decision to, uh, to standardize this and, and make sure that uh, it is clinically tested and, and it's tested in animal studies and then uh, clinical testing uh, and so that we can uh, remove the, the, the danger out of the fasting. Yeah. So before we did this interview, I mentioned to you that I was going to do a nine day water fast. And the first thing you said was, Hey, who's, who's supervising that? So how do you, how do you feel about that for a healthy person who's done it several times and doesn't have any disease states and isn't, uh, overweight or on any kind of medications? Do you feel like three days would be safe or, you know, have your loved ones like keep an eye on you or a week is safe or two weeks. You, you probably can't say that because you don't want any liability. And, and I, I am the same. I don't want any liability. But what what at least general comments do you have? I, I want people to feel like they can fast. I want people to feel like they can fast. Look at it this way, you know, and sometimes we look at the, you know, the government as the bad, uh, the bad actor and all that. But really, um, uh, institutions like the, F- the Food and Drug Administration are there to protect us, right? And if you look at the, the way the FDA uh, rules, and, and this is really based on experience. Why? Because let's say a drug uh, uh, may seem so very innocuous, right? And so you think, oh, how could this possibly hurt me? And then when you look at 10,000 people, it did hurt a lot of people, right? So there is a, a percentage of people, and it could be any combination of, of, of things. And, and, and it's hard to know until you do the clinical studies and until you do something that's called phase four, that you actually monitor tens of thousands of people and ask, continue to ask the question, what happens if you do this uh, together with a variety of situations? So, so this hasn't really been done uh, you know, for this improvised uh, water-only or semi-water-only fasting. So probably the majority of people are going to be fine, right? Or uh, certainly are going to be fine in any given 
uh, fasting uh, moment, meaning that they might do it five times and they're fine, then they can do it the sixth time and they get in trouble. And they could get in trouble maybe because they have a cold, right? Or maybe they have uh, some bacterial inf- uh, infection or, or they may have uh, um, you know, some other issue, medical, or maybe taking a certain drug. So now all of a sudden, the fasting and refeeding uh, uh, moments um, really revolutionize the metabolism in the human body and so when that happens, um, let's say, for example, I'll give you a, an easy one, metformin, right? This is one of the most taken drugs in the United States. Uh, metformin, and lo- lots of people take it even when they're pre-diabetic or certainly in the early stages of diabetes. And others suggest that people should take it all the time, even if they're not diabetic, you know, that this is mean tested. So now metformin blocks something called gluconeogenesis. So, and this is where your, your liver basically makes glucose. And, uh, and, and to feed your brain and the rest of the body. Now, uh, fasting requires a gluconeogenesis. So now you combine something that blocks gluconeogenesis with something that requires gluconeogenesis, and the result could be disaster, including that, right? So now something so innocuous, like, and, and I talk to clinicians, and if you're not aware of the mechanisms, even di- you know, endocrinologists that are very well trained in handling diabetes patients, they don't know this, right? They're very surprised when I say, did you know that one fasting requires gluconeogenesis and the other one, metformin, blocks gluconeogenesis? Interesting. So let's back up because we started to talk about fasting and I said, tell us about the health benefits of it. And we kind of bunny trailed off into the risks for, you know, a minority of people. Can you go a little deeper when you talked about burning up the junk, getting rid of the junk? Can you talk a little bit about what the health benefits are of fasting? What And we could talk later about what fasting safely looks like for different people and your fasting mimicking diet. I want to dive into that, but let's, let's talk more about the health benefits. Yes. And, and first of all, we used to think that, uh, and this is why I make the distinction now, we used to think that fasting and fasting making diet. So the fasting making diet was just a way to get fasting uh, plus uh, um, plus the ability to eat, right? Now we're finding out it's not just that. It's, there is more about what the, the food, the fasting mimicking food contains that is activating and triggering uh, protective mechanisms. So, but let's say for the sake of, of uh, just uh, keeping it simple now, we can talk about it later but we'll talk about uh, the effects of, of fasting or fasting-making diets. And um, essentially, uh, it, uh, it, I, I use the analogy of a wood-burning train. And, um, and so uh, imagine now you have a wood-burning train, an old one, that uh, cannot make it, does not have, have enough wood to make it to the next uh, train station. So then the, the uh, engineer starts burning, uh, starts going around the train looking for damaged chairs that are made of wood, damaged walls of the train that are made of wood, and burns those first. Then eventually goes to maybe some of the ones that are not damaged and burns those. Uh, so now what happens is the train becomes lighter and the, the train is using itself essentially uh, to make it to the next station. And that's exactly what the human body does. So if you don't have any food coming in, uh, then the body... Uh, after a few days, starts breaking down its components, both inside of each cell and, uh, and also at the organ and system level. So, for example, white blood cells, uh, liver cells, 
muscle cells. You know, so everything starts slowing, slowly uh, breaking down, and um, and this it's also making the body lighter, right? So you don't if you break down a white blood cell in the immune system, you don't need to feed it anymore. So that white blood cell now becomes food for the other cells. And at the same time, now you remove something that consumes energy. Uh, now, when you refeed, uh, the body now has a very sophisticated program, as we found out in many papers that we published, to start rebuilding. And so, for example, uh, some of the extra extraordinary example, you um, damage the pancreas of a mouse, and then you start with the cycles of the fasting mimicking diet, and, and you can regenerate. And so you damage the pancreas to the point that it's not making insulin anymore. And then you start the fasting mimicking diet and refeeding cycles. And after you do four or five of them, uh, the, the, the pancreas uh, now starts making insulin again. So you're essentially regenerated uh, functional pancreatic cells. And we've shown the same is true um, in, a, in a multiple sclerosis model uh, where we damage the, the autoimmunity, damages the the uh, myelin in, in the spinal cord, and now the, the cycles of fasting, mimicking diet, and refeeding uh, can regenerate that. So, so essentially, um, I mean, if you, if you look for what is the most, why is all of this happening? Uh, um, and by the way, like in the multiple sclerosis system, the, the body seems to able to go first after the autoimmune cells. So as I was saying, you know, the, the damaged components of the train versus the good one. First, it seems like uh, the body that uh, knows what's damaged and what's not. And so, you know, whether it's a precancerous cell or a cancer cell or autoimmune cells, it seems to do to be able to kill those first and or certainly kill those at a high level. And, um, and so now, um, now on one side, you have the, the killing of damaged cells, and on the other side, you have the rebuilding, uh, and you see how this can, can really be uh, effective in, in the prevention and treatment of uh, many diseases. Okay, so this is fascinating because in the beginning of our interview, when you were talking about how there's you know a, a very few who might have a terrible reaction to fasting, especially if they're doing a long period of time. And you mentioned uh, a patient you know with diabetes who actually died of trying to do a long, longer fast and a patient with multiple sclerosis who died, um, even, even being supervised. And I want to point out that you also just were talking about the benefits of breaking down, rebuilding possibly myelin sheath, Okay, that's your multiple sclerosis right there. And you just talked about regenerating the pancreas as being a potential benefit uh, demonstrated in animal studies, which I read about both of those in your book, which is why a diabetic patient would be interested in, in fasting. So I think it's unbelievably exciting in this age where we feel like we're breaking down in midlife at an unprecedented rate, probably because of our crap diet and all the tox toxicity everywhere in our environment that, that our body can, if we give it a break from metabolism can actually break down those broken parts. I loved your wood burning train metaphor. Uh, so d the body can actually break down broken parts of myelin sheath and pancreas and you come out of it with a pancreas, like a baby's and at least in animal studies. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say like a baby, but certainly um, in the animals, we show that we go from a pancreas that no longer makes insulin 
to a pancreas that makes normal insulin. So I, mean, I don't know, do you define that as, a, as a, a one working like a baby or not, but certainly a tremendous differences in uh, the ability to make insulin. And also we show this in both the human type one and, and normal uh, pancreatic cells that the fasting is able to turn back on insulin production uh, or, or increase uh, insulin production. So, I mean, you know, the potential is there uh, you know, we are now uh, starting clinical trials on both type 1 and type 2 diabetes uh, and, and metabolic syndrome. There is going to be three different trials actually handling each one of those uh, uh, diseases. We have a trial that we're going to start on uh, multiple sclerosis, one that we're going to start on uh, uh, Crohn's colitis. So, yeah, so we're, we're going after all of this. And, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I hope it's uh, successful for everything. But... Uh, uh, I mean, I think if we were successful in a third of these, uh, uh, it would be already extraordinary. So uh, we, uh, we're optimistic, but we don't want to be over uh, optimistic. Yeah, I think you're very, very scientific in your approach and you don't make a lot of claims. I mean, the thing I was excited to talk to you about is that you're a researcher, not a marketer here. And so um, I'm really interested to see what rolls out and what plays out as you test fasting against these specific diagnoses. And I want to talk a little bit about autophagy because when you talk about and about you mentioned refeeding. And that was something I learned from your book is that people talk about fasting, like it's the breaking down process and the autophagy and the body going after the broken parts, broken cells, rebuilding from inside the cell. But it's not it's not just the breaking down, then there's what happens after your period of fasting. Can you talk a little about the refeeding? I mean, that seems to suggest to me, if you know, we're breaking down the broken chairs on the wood burning train, if we're not going to make it to the station, and then we get to the station, and the rest of your metaphor is then, then we rebuild the chairs when we get to the station is, is this, this makes it very, very important that we eat, you know, a very, very healthy diet after our period of fasting or of the fasting mimicking diet. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, uh, absolutely. So the refeeding and the nourishment becomes as important as the, the breaking down. So at a certain point, uh, when you get to the train station, then you got to rebuild it. And if nobody's there to rebuild it well, then you're going to have a broken train. And, uh, and the body is the same way. So, for example, proteins. Um, and we, um, I eat mostly vegan diet, but I eat uh, fish a couple times a week. And, 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 you know, and of course you can get enough protein by a vegan diet. So this is not a criticism for the vegan diet, but it's a warning, right? Because a lot of people that are vegan don't realize how much, let's say chickpeas you need to have 40 grams of protein, right? And now of course the majority, the great majority of Americans uh, and Europeans are eating too much protein. Uh, but then you may have the vegans that eat too little proteins, right? And, and this may explain why vegans sometimes in some studies are not performing as well as you will expect against the, the, uh, the carnivores. Um, so I think it, it, the proteins, for example, is a very important part of the rebuilding. And uh, again, it's not about excess protein, it's about sufficient levels of protein. So for example, if you're a 120 pound uh, person, uh, you're looking at maybe... Uh, 45 grams of protein per day uh, being the minimum. Um, and, uh, you know, 45 grams of protein means about 400 grams, so one pound of chickpeas 
or beans, right? That's a lot, right? <laughs> so most people don't, don't have that much. And so, so this is very important uh, to, to look at. Uh, another one is omega-3 fatty acids. Well, um, you know, you may not have that in, in your diet unless you eat uh, a fish. Um, and, um, and so that's something that uh, is probably very important in the rebuilding process uh, and B12 is also probably important in the uh, rebuilding process. And a lot of vegan, if you don't take a supplement, you're not going to have B12. So these are the things to, to pay attention to. Um, and um, and, uh, uh, and I, I, I don't think that too many people are aware of this. And now I should mention one thing, because I mentioned all these trials that are coming up, but I mean, I, you may, uh, was gonna, you were going to ask me maybe, but uh, we did finish a trial though, 100 uh, uh, people, uh, uh, randomized clinical trial. And, and that was very, um, and that already, and, and we finished uh, mouse studies, but the, the human clinical trial showed uh, powerful effects, particularly in people that had high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high tr- triglycerides, uh, high fasting glucose, high systemic inflammation as measured by CRP, and also high risk uh, factors for, uh, for cancer. And, uh, and in all cases, uh, these were reduced or greatly reduced by uh, the three cycles of the fasting-making diet. So I just wanted to make sure that we get that in there because uh, I didn't want people to think that it's all about future studies. The prevention and the effects on, on risk factors, and for example, a lot of the pre-diabetic patients uh, move back to the normal state. And a lot of the, the people that had the systemic inflammation and they were at risk for cardiovascular disease, they also moved back to the low risk uh, range, right? So uh, in, in uh, 60% of the effects of the fasting-making diet uh, were long-lived, meaning that after three months, that, uh, so the patients did three cycles of the FMD one month apart for five days. And then after three months, we measured it again, and 60% of the changes were still there. So meaning that they're going away after three months slowly, but uh, the the majority of the effects are still are still there and are probably lasting four, five, six months. Uh, it probably takes four, five, six months before all the effects go away. Well, that is beyond exciting that you can spend this you know brief period of time fasting, and then have long term disease preventative risk you know risk decrease because of that. And one of the things I really like about your work, Professor Longo, is that you're very rigorous about assessing anything that somebody might make claims about. You know, for instance, I don't want to go sideways just yet on the ketogenic diet that's so popular here in the U.S. right now. Um, I want to I want to talk about that in a minute. But, you know, there's people out there claiming that it's preventative of cancer or, it's, or that it's a good diet for a cancer patient. And, and they cherry pick. This is my opinion. You can totally... Uh, disagree, agree, whatever, but they, they cherry pick the data. Um, and a few people out there are repeating cherry pick data about how the ketogenic diet, which is, you know, tons of bacon and butter and stuff like that is somehow good for cancer. You, you say, no, no, no. Rather than cherry pick the data, there's five pillars that we need to look at before we're going to make any claims about whether something, you know, contributes to longevity or not. So will you talk about, because you are, I believe you are becoming one of the world's leading authorities on what actually creates longevity in human beings. And we're all hanging on your every word. And I'm super excited to continue to follow the arc of your career because 
everybody wants to know about this and you're out there doing these trials and comparing it to other longitudinal studies. Talk about the five pillars before you're going to put any real weight on some practice, some dietary practice, whatever. And you've kind of honed in on fasting because it's been so powerful. But what are these five pillars that you look at before you're going to go out there and make claims like the ketogenic diet people are making? Yeah. And and, and first of all, in the book, I talk about uh, pick who you listen to, right? So uh, so, uh, I mean, obviously I've been doing this for, for 30 years now and, uh, with some of the best groups in the world and some of the top universities in the world. And so this really is important. It doesn't mean that you have to take my track. Uh, there are people that are trained other ways, but, uh, certainly it's very important to, uh, pick the right people you listen to when you, whenever you, have, you need surgery, uh, most people don't just say, oh, you know, anybody can do surgery. They, they look at uh, the, the surgeon, the hospital, the success rate. Right? Somehow, when it gets to eating, uh, people underestimate the power of it, and, uh, and they just grab anything that they can find on the Internet. Like, imagine if somebody did that for surgery. I mean, it would be crazy, right? And yet, uh, uh, the way you eat um, it can, can really make an incredible impact on whether you live to a hundred or, or, or to 50. Um, so the five pillars, uh, of course, then, um, I had to come up with a system and the, the, it was important even for me to not say, Oh, you know, because I've spent 30 years on this now I can say whatever I want. doesn't work like that. Um, I, I, I still have to show and the, uh, the, the, this works using multiple pillars of, of science and medicine. And so the pillars are epidemiology. So what about, you know, if you're talking about, for example, a high meat, high protein, high fat, animal fat diet, and you look at large populations, um, is, this, uh, is this high animal fat, animal protein diet and low sugar is this successful one? And, and, and for example, I'll just give you an example. Large study by Harvard um, uh, looking at low-carb, high-protein, high-fat diet and showing very clearly increased overall mortality, increased cardiovascular mortality, increased mortality from cancer. So epidemiology, population large, uh, large uh, studies of large population are very important. The other one is clinical studies. You know, What if you take a group and you feed it high animal protein, high fat, and you take another group uh, and you feed it uh, a control diet, you know, how do they do? And uh, for example, you'll see that the ones that eat a high protein diet uh, will have a high level of IGF-1. And IGF-1 is a, uh, a risk factor or marker for cancer and also aging, et cetera. So at the clinical level, there's not much data about this, but certainly um, uh, there is, uh, it's a very important pillar. And for example, another one that I talk about all the time and I talk about in the book is the large study done in Spain by the Astro group. And basically they took thousands of people and put them on a low fat diet and then thousands of people and they put them on a high olive oil and, and, or nut diet. So nuts, different type of nuts. And this was trying to address the, this argument about, you know, there are books out there that talk about, oh, you need to have zero fat in your diet to be protected against cardiovascular disease. So uh, at the end of the five years, they had to stop the study because the people that were on olive oil and or nuts were doing so much better than the controls. And these were people that are at high risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, they were so much better on olive oil and nuts that uh, they had to stop it and let everybody uh, take advantage of this, right? So that's the second pillar 
the, um, the, the clinical studies. And the third pillar is a basic research focus on longevity, right? So you, you need to look at, say, what about mice and other organisms that have been tested? What if they're fed a high protein diet, for example? versus a low-protein diet. Do they do better? Um, and um, well, it turns out that, not surprisingly, uh, if they're fed a low-protein diet, they live longer, healthier. And, uh, um, and so uh, that's the third pillar, uh, fundamental research, basic research, focus on longevity. And why is it important to focus on longevity? Well, because you could say to somebody, uh, this causes cancer, don't eat it. And, and I can come back and say, well, it doesn't matter because this prevents Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease and diabetes, right? <laughs> and so, and now you have to put it in the context of what is what impact is going to have on your overall health, uh, and and not necessarily is it co- increasing your chance of developing colon cancer by 22 percent when it may decrease your chance for developing cardiovascular disease by 100 uh, by 50 percent, right? So. Uh, now, there is not very many examples of this. I'm just making it up, but but uh, certainly that, uh, that that's important to look at that. And the fourth pillar is, is uh, centenarians and populations around the world that have record longevity. Very important pillar. Why is that? Well, because you could do uh, some studies and, and you could, by mistake and coincidence, uh, get a lot of uh, opinions about what something does based on a short study. And, uh, uh, and maybe even multiple pillars will support it. But then if you go look at the Okinawans, the people in Loma Linda, California, the people in Sardinia, Calabria, Icaria, uh, Greece, the ones that have record longevity, and you ask the question, did they have a high-protein diet, for example, right? Um, well, none of them do, right? So then, then you have to think, hmm, that's, uh, that's interesting, you know, uh, that... Uh, uh, when we go look at the ones that are very successful, none of them adopt a high-protein diet. Uh, well, luckily, the other pillars support a low-protein diet, so we don't have a problem there. So, so everything in these four pillars now is supporting, let's say, a low-protein, mostly vegan, uh, maybe some fish plus some fish diet, being the most, but also a high-nourishment diet uh, being the, the most protective. And the fifth pillar is complex systems. What if you look at cars and planes? or the train that I was just telling, telling you about, right? So this allows us to simplify things and, and look at uh, examples of things that we built, like the train. And so it's very easy to understand something be, uh, like the train because we built it. And, and that way you can, we can take it apart and, and sort of reason about the consequences of, of, of uh, what I uh, told you earlier, you know, like say burning the wood uh, to, to get fuel to get to the next station. Okay, I love it. Very good overview of the five pillars. I'm going to repeat them back in bullet point form here, but I'm going to put number three as number five. And that's because I'm going to ask a follow up question about it. So Professor Longo tells us that he wants to look at five different pillars before he's going to make a recommendation about diet or fasting or any of anything related to our longevity based on number one, epidemiological large studies. Number two, uh, large clinical studies. Uh, number four, I'm skipping one is centenarians looking at what the blue zones actually eat. The people who live to be over a hundred at 20 to 30 times the rate that Americans do. Uh, number five comparisons to other complex systems. And then back to number three, basic longevity research. And you mentioned, you touched on this and I want to go a little deeper is comparing 
over the course of a lifetime, how people do on a high fat, low carb diet, for instance. And you talk about this in your book and it completely defies what the current trend is. And it's really important to me that people get very aware of what they're being taught out there in this new ketogenic diet fad. And actually the, all of the low carb fads of the last 15 years is all these fad diets that have made billions of dollars at the expense of Americans health. In my opinion, I'm totally betraying my own prejudice here, but we are being told to avoid carbs and carbs are being vilified. And we're being told that carbohydrates are bad foods, but what do we know from looking at people who live a long time regarding how much fat they eat and how, how much carbs they eat? We know a lot. And um, not just uh, not just the centenarians, but all the pillars, right? And if you look at every single one of the pillars, uh, the the carbohydrates come on top, every single one. Uh, now the problem is that people confuse sugars, starches, and carbohydrates, right? And most people, I would say, don't even know the difference, right? So sugars are the simple form of the carbohydrate, and and you know, like what you will have in a Coke, uh, that's a sugar. And uh, now starches are complex and they are what we get from the pasta, the bread, the rice, etc. So now starches and I mean, sugars, you probably want to keep it very, very low, right? As, as low as possible. You know, and, and also by not eating a lot of fruit, uh, you can eat fruit, but not a lot of fruit. Um, so why? Because it contains lots of sugar. Now, it's okay, uh, one apple a day or whatever is perfectly fine, no problem. And in, in fact, it may, may help you, but uh, not, not lots of uh, fruit. Starches now, um, they're good and bad. Why are they good? Well, they're good because they taste good, right? And people love it. That's another thing I learned the hard way. You just can't come up with things that everybody hates because they'll drop it. You know? So if you go to extreme then people will do it for six months. And we know this over and over and over. They'll do it for six months and then they'll drop it. So I learned that in the book I talked about, don't get rid of pasta if you're Italian or whatever, or rice or, or bread, but get rid of lots of it. You know? So get rid, keep 50 grams in your dish of pasta. And that's what I do every day. Right? I love to have that because it, it pleases me. It makes me happy. But then I put uh, 400, 350 grams of, of, of chickpeas and another 100 grams of vegetable, so 50 grams of pasta. So that's a very healthy dish. What you see all over the world, which is the dish, every restaurant that you go to, you see this dish covered with pasta or rice, and then you know 30 grams of garbanzo beans and, and, and you know and two vegetables. That's very unhealthy, right? So 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 you, you, that's the problem in the demonization. We are attacking carbohydrate, not really understanding that what we really mean to do is attack sugars and say limit starches and say have a ton of carbohydrate unless you have a particular inflammatory disease that you know affects you. Uh, you know, some people may be allergic or, or intolerant to tomatoes. You know, so you cannot have a ton of tomatoes. But if you don't have that, then having most of your carbohydrate come from the legumes and come from the uh, vegetables. That's a very healthy way to do it. And in the book, I talk about 60%. About 60% of your calories should come from carbohydrate. But, you know, not, not a big portion of it should come from starches. So try to limit that. Because that's what eventually, it's empty carbs and eventually are going to contribute to obesity. Um, and, uh, and that's going to contribute to all, all kinds of diseases. So 60, 30, 10. 60% 
good carbs, mostly um, 30% fats and 10% protein. That's, that is a good uh, uh, distribution, keeping in mind that um, uh, 30% fat, fats contain a lot more calories per gram than, than carbs and proteins. That's almost the opposite of what people have been eating who've been following the paleo diet. The research I've seen is that 40 to 80% of calories, most people following the paleo diet is protein. And you're saying 10% protein is is ideal. I think that's totally borne out by all the same, you know, meta studies, uh, all the meta-analysis out there shows us that eating carbohydrates, that's like our main fuel source. And Well, you know, not only, but if you look at the high animal fat, high protein, I just mentioned a large study by Harvard um, and negative. But if you look at the animal studies, if you give them a high protein diet, they lose weight. And that's where people are, are, are confused. And that's why you need the experts, right? So you, you lose weight, then you might even see an improvement in some markers. Uh, and then uh, you're going to have a, a more metabolic problems and a shorter lifespan. Um, now, you know, let's say that there was a form, a very special form of a paleo diet that uh, works. I mean, we cannot rule it out. But, you know, there are much healthier ways to lose weight than, than that. So it's good, for example, to keep, as I just mentioned, keep the starches low, right? Keep the sugars low. Keep the carbohydrates high, right? And, and, and so a lot of times I don't think they realize that, that um, these differences, so that's why they talk about a low-carb diet because they don't even understand the difference. And, and of course, if you keep the starches low and the sugar low, you're going to lose weight the same way. But now you're going to do it in a healthy way rather than having lots of meat and hamburgers and, 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 and other fats, uh, animal fats uh, and proteins that uh, do both, uh, uh, well, do mostly bad. Yeah. I almost feel like the word carbohydrate is a meaningless, useful, useless word because it, you know, yeah, a bagel is going to be bad for you, but you know, legumes might also qualify as a carbohydrate and there's just no comparison between those two foods. Yeah, absolutely. Not, not just a uh, carbohydrate, but also protein and fats, right? So in the book, I talk about uh, they're all good and bad. You know, these, uh, these ideas from the past that fat is bad uh, or good is, is, is a bad idea. Same thing for proteins. So in fats, you know, olive oil, the fat from salmon, the fat from nuts, these are excellent sources of fat. I mean, it's good to have about 30% of your diet having those, as you see in southern Italy, as you see in, in uh, Greece and other parts of the world. And now the Okinawans have less fat uh, consumption. Uh, but uh, of course, it's very bad to have lots of butter, lots of fat from, from milk-based products and dairy uh, products uh, and, and, and red meat, etc. So um, those have been uh, over and over and over associated with problems and shorten lifespan and, and uh, lengthen. And same thing for proteins. You know, uh, proteins from vegetables are perfectly good and uh, and protein from fish in in, in within limits uh, are also good, uh, and uh, you know a ton of proteins as, as everybody is doing from from uh, these artificial drinks or whatever, um, or from uh, uh, red meat or from most uh, meats, not just red meat, uh, also white meat. Uh, they are uh, associated with problems, and so you know you either get rid of it or certainly limit it as much as possible. 
Yeah, your diet, you've described your diet as being vegan with a little bit of fish. And some people, that's that's John Robbins' diet, who who I have interviewed on this show, whose work, um, Diet for a New America and the Food Revolution, influenced my life tremendously 25 years ago. And it's my diet too, although I don't, I don't eat fish a couple times a week. I probably eat it a couple times a month, Just and I'm really doing it to hedge my bets because I don't think vegan even describes a diet very well because you can eat a lot of different things within a vegan diet. But I want you to talk about one other thing, just because I hear so much vilification or demonization of legumes. And as you talk about your diet and you're of course from Italy and, and you know, the most researched positive outcome diet is Mediterranean diet. You, um, you've had your own experience being a a rock musician and eating the crap diet when you came to the U S and, you know, in Chicago, I, I read your story and, and, but as you talk about your diet now, you always bring up legumes. And when you talk about the blue zones, you bring up legumes, but what's interesting Professor Longo, is that we have several of the fad diets that are being heavily promoted here in the U.S., and I'm going to mention a few, paleo, keto, and AIP totally demonize legumes. You talked about eating a pound a day of chickpeas as an example of how you can get your, you can get plenty of protein from legumes. And I feel like people have been eating legumes for thousands of years. And I feel like the healthiest populations on earth eat split peas and lentils and beans of all kind. But right now in the US, people are being told not to eat them and instead to get their protein from animal sources. What do you think? Well, I think, and this is again where the pescatarian diet comes in. I think that, in fact, uh, I know that there are people that have inflammatory diseases. And so if you have... um, if you have an autoimmunity in the gastrointestinal system, um, and maybe uh, this is caused by, uh, it's been initiated by antibiotics or it's been initiated by something else, uh, maybe a viral infection. So there are, there are situations where the gut flora, the microbiota is so affected by something that happened to you, like, as I just mentioned, then now your, your gut becomes leaky and, uh, and now there are lactins and other components that are in, in, in legumes. Uh, and this also depends how you cook them. Uh, but yeah, so that's possible that some people develop uh, inflammatory diseases that are negatively affected by certain legumes or even vegetables. You know, I mentioned uh, tomatoes. Tomatoes are pro-inflammatory um, uh, fruit, right? And uh, so... So, yeah, if you have that, then you got to find out what it is and you have to stay away from it until your microbiota goes back to normal. And certainly the fasting mimicking diet, now we're, we're testing this for, for Crohn's and colitis. Hopefully um, uh, this, I mean, uh, it has a positive effect on the, on the gut microbiota. But I think that, um, uh, in fact, in the clinical trial that we're going to run here at USC, we're going to combine the fasting mimicking diet with anti uh, with the, the lack of pro-inflammatory vegetables and legumes, right? So we're going to eliminate them uh, from the diet of these patients until um, they, uh, hopefully they're healthy, right? So absolutely, in some cases, and that's again where the five pillars come in. In some cases, the legumes and even vegetables can be, uh, can be detrimental and, and fruits that can be detrimental. Um, so in, in those cases, um, you have to avoid them and this could make a tremendous difference in your life. Now, is it complete? Is it well understood? Not yet. I think we're still learning about pro-inflammatory vegetables. 
and uh, uh, and legumes and how maybe cooking can completely change this inflammatory property. And also that we're learning about uh, is inflammation at a low level necessarily bad? And, and why do I say that? It's possible that, for example, you can give somebody a tomato and that's, you know, if somebody never had the tomato, that is pro-inflammatory. But it's also possible and likely that if you give somebody a tomato long enough, they're going to develop bacteria that can process the tomato in a way that is in symbiosis with your organism and now it doesn't affect you anymore, right? And this is probably when you mention people have been eating tomatoes for hundreds of years and, and legumes for thousands of years. Uh, this is probably, um, you know, what you, uh, why we, they were fine because they came from, uh, they always had this and their, their gut uh, bacteria and microorganisms were really set up to deal with tomatoes or, or garbanzo beans and, and other legumes, right? So that's why they don't have problems. But yeah, absolutely. You could have somebody that always ate meat uh, and now all of a sudden they take tomato and they, this could be a negative, uh, a, a negative uh, food for them. Interesting. Yeah. I, I laughed in the book where you talk about how a woman was talking to you about her diet and you, you were saying, you know, we, we're taking our cues on what to eat from the wrong people. And this woman was explaining to you why she eats the way she does. And then she said this, this phrase that people say to me all the time, and it's so frustrating. She was like, well, all things in moderation. And I, I laugh because I feel like people say that it's like, no, you really should not eat arsenic in moderation. Like, I feel like that saying was meant for, we should eat all things that are good for us in moderation. And what what do you think about that? Well, yeah, moderation is one of those worthless, I mean, you know, not only worthless, it's kind of like the word intermittent fasting, right? It doesn't mean anything. You know, moderation is the same thing. It doesn't mean anything because uh, what is moderation? You know, if you ask 10 people, they're going to give you 10 versions of what a moderation is. You know, this is why I talk about a bagel in the, in the, uh, in the book. And, you know, if you ask people how much calories is it in a bagel, a lot of them will say 100, 150 and by the time you put some cream cheese on it, you might have 600 calories in a bagel. Yeah? And uh, uh, so, so is that moderation? Um, yeah, so people, uh, we, we need to stop using words like moderation because it's just an excuse for people to eat whatever it is that they want to eat. Uh, and, um, and that includes, uh, you know, like you say, arsenic, for example, you know, it includes foods that maybe historically – uh, we view it as, as uh, good for us, uh, let's say, uh, you know, um, rice or certain uh, uh, whole grain, uh, um, uh, certain types of rice, and, uh, and they contain um, lots of arsenic. Uh, and now, you know, particularly if you're allergic to that, uh, and, and, and I guess it's a toxin, so almost everybody in some ways is allergic to it, uh, now you have a problem. And uh, um, so even... The, some good foods may contain ingredients, at least nowadays, that are, are toxic. And so we need to figure out. Um, and now people shouldn't get worried, you know, because I think that if you're being something, and this is why I talk about going back to your grandparents and figure out out of the good foods, which one did your grandparents also consume? Because it's less likely uh, if you do it the same way they did it and they were fine, most likely you're going to be fine too. So you mentioned how intermittent fasting is a word that gets thrown around a lot these days and how it's sort of meaningless. And I think it's super funny that people are calling 
not eating from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. intermittent intermittent fasting. I think that could literally only happen in 2018 America that 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 is somehow a weird thing to not eat from 7 a.m. 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. because that's not even fasting. That's just the distance between dinner and breakfast, you know, but um that's tell- called eating actually, right? <laughs> so, so, so 7 a.m. 7 p.m. Uh, it's called eating. And of course, then uh, people have always done that. And I, I just emailed Sachin Panda and, uh, and you, I was like, Sachin, how is it possible that now people are using your studies to mention that, you know, going for 12 hours without food, it's fasting. You know, of course, it's just the normal eating, you know, let's stop calling it fasting. And even the 16 hours of, of fasting, it shouldn't be called fasting. It should be called time restricted eating. Um, and, uh, you know, because it's, uh, it, the body doesn't even enter, uh, uh and even an, an initial fasting mode, you know? Uh, so I think it's, it's good to, uh, um, to, uh, start, you know, uh, qualifying what it is that we mean by different things. And particularly when you go from, you know, a few hours to, uh, to a few months, right? I mean, and, and what does that mean? You know, it's like calling anything you eat food, uh, uh, call it eating, you know, and uh, yeah, of course you can do that. It's okay. Even if you go two hours without food, that's fasting. But for the purpose of, of, uh, what people understand when you say intermittent fasting, we should certainly, uh, eliminate these, uh, this for sure the 12 hours, but probably also the 16 hours. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about your fasting mimicking diet. You can learn about it in professor Longo's book, the longevity diet. And then we'll talk about where else they can find you. I think it's super interesting that you don't accept any profit from your book, your products, teaching people how to do the fasting mimicking diet. It's just really incredible that the the benefits here go to cancer patients who want to step outside of, of standard of care, which is a big passion of mine too. That's why I'm going to try and talk you into coming to Switzerland and meet meeting my friends there who treat cancer with biological medicine, not far from where you are in Milan. If I can talk you into it, I'll work. I'll work on you later on that. But um, let's let's talk about the fasting mimicking diet because you don't you don't think somebody should just jump into a two week or three week water fast like I've done a number of times in my life. You don't recommend that. I don't blame you. Nobody wants the the liability of that. But you've discovered some ways that we can achieve many of the same benefits. Yes, and, and not. Um... Now, I think just uh, many of the same benefits. We now have evidence that uh, we're adding benefits to the fasting, to the water-only fasting. So there are, there are things about the fasting-making diet. And the fasting-making diet is a, um, it, it doesn't have a particular length. But the one we tested on healthy or relatively healthy subjects said it was a five-day, uh, low protein, low sugar, low starches, high, relatively high, good carbohydrates, from mostly from vegetables. And uh, high fat, but good fats, right? So really, this is a summary of of um, the um, why we shouldn't demonize any particular component because they're all good and they're all bad. Um, so, but the purpose of the fasting making diet is exploiting our many years of connecting, for example, proteins with something that we call growth hormone IGF one a pathway and TOR cyskinase pathway. So we spend decades really understanding the link between components of the food like proteins and aging pathways. The pathways, they control aging, they control protection, but they also control regeneration, both inside of a cell and uh, cellular. 
that I mentioned earlier. Um, another, uh, on the other side is sugars. Sugar control are also pro-aging and they control uh, something called protein kinase A. And, uh, and so together, proteins and sugar drive, uh, you know, push the, the, the system to age faster uh, and also to not regenerate. And uh, uh, so the fasting making diet exploits this and much more than this. Um, and um, to uh, allow people to uh, undergo five days of fasting in a safe way, uh, but also um, activate all these different pathways. And then it has a number of ingredients that make sure that uh, um, the, the uh, patients are relatively full. I mean, they're not going to be full, of course, uh, completely full, but relatively, meaning that, that they can handle it. They don't feel like uh, they're being completely deprived. I've done water-only fasting, and to me it's been, and you've done it, uh, but to me it's been very, very, it was very, very tough. Um, and uh, maybe because I'm Italian, but, uh, but certainly it was difficult. Um, so it can be done, but it's difficult on people. So the purpose of the fasting-making diet is also keep people eating almost normally, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, plus a snack, um, and, um, and also nourish people because, um, some people may be deficient in B12, may be deficient in iron, may be deficient in all kinds of, um, uh, minerals and vitamins before they begin the fasting and the fasting could exacerbate this. Right? So let's say somebody was uh, severely protein deficient for two months. Now they come and do uh, five, six, seven days of water only fasting. This could push them over the edge. Um, and so, and maybe, for example, suppress the immune system to a point that they get pneumonia. Uh, now, very common, uh, for example, among the people that have very restricted diets, right? So the immune system is very sensitive to nourishment. And uh, uh, if you push it to the limit, uh, you can now have a uh, problem. So, uh, so again, the fasting diet we tested clinically um, on 100 patients. And, uh, um, and, uh, and, and the results are very positive. And if you go to prolonefmd.com, uh, prolon as uh, prolongevity, FMD, fasting, diet.com, uh, then you can read all about it, consider the clinical results. Um, now I should say that all my uh, shares of the company are, uh, will be assigned to the Create Cures Foundation. And uh, as, as you mentioned also my book, uh, uh, royalties, uh, all the royalties are already assigned to the Create Cures Foundation. Uh, and uh, so we've been able to raise uh, millions of dollars actually already from the book sales uh, uh, worldwide. And uh, so we're very happy about that. And we started uh, a number of donations um, to continue to do this kind of research. Some of it comes here at USC or the Institute in Milan. Some of it goes to uh, other institutes and foundations that are, um, that are doing research in this area. And the idea is really to help people that have uh, real problems, big problems, uh, have an integrative solution right now and not 10 years under all, not 20 years under all. Basically saying, you know, uh, I had so many cancer patients and autoimmune disease patients and et cetera, et cetera, contact me every day and I still do. And I always thought that's amazing that we don't have anything to, uh, that people can trust and say, you know, shall I do, let's say, fasting, mimicking diet plus chemotherapy, or uh, what shall I eat between a cycle and the other? I mean, these are questions that I get all the time, and it's just really sad. I, I always thought it was very sad that these patients have to go to the internet and try to figure out uh, 
um, you know, what to do about something that may be uh, life threatening. Yeah. And I, I actually, another reason I want to spend some time with you when I go to Milan this year or whenever we can get together is that I really believe people should have access to other ways of addressing their cancer than just standard of cares, chemo and radiation. And speaking of that, and really, this will be my last question for you, except where to where to learn more. You've you've touched on some places to learn about prolon therapy. And um, thanks for sharing how you're gifting all the proceeds of your book and your program to to helping people with with cancer and helping to increase research out there about what can be done beyond standard of care. But um, I'm, I really want to do more in that area. I think there's lots of people who would like to be treated outside of standard of care and can't afford it and don't know where the resources are. But I'm really super curious to hear how your trial goes because you're focusing on Crohn's and IBS. And when I first started studying fasting many years ago, it was when Dr. Thomas Lodi, who is a Columbia trained medical doctor, friend of mine, um, gave me his whole bibliography on why his, the first approach he wants a cancer patient to take is, is a long, a long-term water fast. And I was sort of, you know, amazed by that because sometimes when I think of cancer, I think of stage four patients who are in cachexia and their bodies metabolizing muscle. And so I wonder, I'm really super curious to hear how it goes when you put you know, you put Crohn's and IBS patients through uh, fasting because while I can see that really breaking down and rebuilding and letting them have sort of a new, a new GI tract in some ways, they're also underweight, a lot of them. So are you worried about that? How are you addressing that in your research? Well, first of all, you know, to, to do a, a long-term water-only fasting, if you're a cancer patient, is a bad idea, um, you know, to the point that uh, all the, even the Russians, uh, uh, that, um, you know, I've been doing fasting at clinics in Siberia and other places, uh, and the Germans that have been doing this for a long time, the cancer has always been one of the things they excluded. Now, uh, that said, you know, of course, we've been working on cancer for, for uh, you know, a long, long time. And, uh, and you know, it is possible uh, that, you know, in some patients, uh, in a long fast, could uh, if the cancer cells are very responsive, uh, it could even cure a few patients, a very small percentage. Uh, but um, I just tell you that even in mice, if we fast the mice, we almost never cured any mice with any cancer with just fasting. Uh, but we cured a lot of mice um, with the combination of fasting, either water only or fasting making diet and chemotherapy, right? So again, we got to go back to the five pillars, right? So it, it, it's just easy for people to come up with ideas and they don't understand. I mean, you have no idea the fights that I've had with oncologists all over the world. Why? Well, for example, the latest one is in Italy because basically they're showing, you know, even the short fasting clinical trials that we're doing right now, the, the oncologists are coming back to me and say, look at how they're losing lean body mass during your fasting, mimicking diet, not even fasting, right? So it is a very tricky, so it, let's put it this way. For cancer patients, if you are not in advance, if you're not at risk, your life is not at risk, it's best to maybe consider a combination of fasting, mimicking diet, and chemotherapy if your oncologist is in agreement, uh, but try to um, maintain good weight. Now, if somebody was um, told, you're going to die, uh, there is nothing else we can do 
then I will agree that under you know medical supervision, finding somebody that can give it a shot, I would never do it alone because I'm telling you, I've seen it. I would tell people if I could, if I saw the fasting cure cancer, in, even in mice, I would say absolutely. Uh, but I would say for the great majority of people, combine it with the chemo because now we've shown even clinically that the fasting can protect against the chemotherapy side effects. And, and so now, even if you use low-dose chemo, uh, that's a powerful combination because now you're protecting the normal cells, not the cancer cells, and the fasting is really making it very difficult for the cancer cells to survive. So I would say, if I didn't have any other options, that may be a very good uh, uh, thing to consider, but talk to somebody that has done hundreds and hundreds of it and knows how to deal with it and... Um, and and has to be done in a compassionate use. You know, there are ways to do this formally for compassionate use, basically saying, inform the patient, there is really nothing else we can do for you. Uh, so uh, this is what we're going to try. You know, it may kill you, but uh, there are, there is nothing else. So it, it's worth the risk. I mean, that's how it has to, it has to be explained to the patient. Uh, because, you know, for example, your immune system, which is the number one uh, protection against the cancer, is going to shut down or really be reduced after two or three weeks of fasting. And, uh, and, and that alone can make the cancer go faster and not slower. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for, for teaching us so much about longevity and, and cancer and addressing disease states and reversing, reversing the effects of aging and maybe even reversing some disease states. I think what you're doing is so exciting. I'm so grateful that you're with us today. Tell everyone where they can, where they can find you. Um, the book is The Longevity Diet by Walter Longo, PhD. Where else? Well, um, uh, people can also uh, follow uh, what we do on Prof. Walter Longo, P-R-O-F, Walter Longo, a Facebook page. Um, and there you can also get the book and, um, and once every few days we put up papers, we try to filter papers that are looking at integrative medicine that are, uh, you know, from, from high reputation journals. And, and also we provide usually an article from a, a newspaper so that people can understand, uh, what the content was. Um, and those are the two main sources. Also createcures.org, createcures.org is the foundation and people can go there and, uh, you know, if, donate if you want, or, or also pretty soon we're going to, um, upload a lot of the papers, almost all the papers from my lab. So people can download them for free and, uh, and just follow, uh, follow the type of studies that we're doing. Well, fantastic. I hope that next time we're both in LA or the next time we're both in Milan, I'm in both places pretty often. I hope we can get together and make plans for how to help more people. And so thank you so much for being on the show. Sounds good. Thank you. 